0: Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1 as we begin. A new book of the Old Testament and uh, tonight it's about the providence of God. The providence of God and I will give you a little introduction before um, we get into chapter 1. But Ezra was a priest, a scribe, and a great leader. His name, Ezra, means help. And his whole life was committed to serving God and God's people. Tradition says that Ezra wrote most of First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Psalm 119. And that he led the council of 120 men who put together the Old Testament records. The account, the account of the book is centered on God and His promise to the Jews, that they would return to their land, just as Jeremiah had prophesied. And this message formed the heart. It it shaped the heart of Ezra's life, which the Word of God should do. Our life should be shaped and molded by the Word of God. The last half of the book of Ezra gives a very personal look at Ezra, his knowledge of the Word of God, and his God-given wisdom, They were so obvious to the king that he appointed Ezra to lead the second exodus to Jerusalem to teach the people God's word and to oversee the life of the nation. Ezra not only knew God's word, he believed it. He obeyed it. And that's important to understand. You know, that's the purpose of knowing God's word. We're to to believe it and we're to obey it. And when Ezra learned about the Israelite sins of intermarriage and idolatry, Ezra humbly fell before God and he prayed for the nation. And the people's disobedience touched him in a very deep way, and his response helped lead the people back to God. Now we ended Second Chronicles with Cyrus, King of Persia, asking for volunteers to go back to Jerusalem to build a house for God. And Ezra continues the story here in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Ezra was a man of God and a true hero, and he was a model for Israel, and he's also a good model for us as well. The purpose of the book of Ezra was to show God's faithfulness and the way that he kept his promise to restore his people to their land. The author, uh, though it's not stated, is probably Ezra. He was a descendant of Hilkiah, the high priest. We see that in Ezra 7-1, who found a copy of the law during the reign of Josiah. Ezra, as a priest, couldn't serve during the captivity because the temple was destroyed. But he spent his time studying the word of God. And Ezra 7-6 tells us that he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. Ezra was also a great revivalist and reformer. And the revival started when Ezra read the Word of God. Ezra was the first to start a revival of Bible study, which is God's plan for revival. People who have have tried to, to drum up revivals by organization and methods and by gimmicks have failed. Because it's not something we can do, it's something that God does. Revival will only come when God's people come back to the word of God. The theme of the book of Ezra is the word of the Lord. And there are 10 references to God's word in this little book. We see it in Ezra 1, Ezra 3, chapter 6, uh, chapter 7, chapter 10. uh, I'm sorry, chapter 7, chapter 9, and chapter 10. The place of the word of God is seen practiced in all areas of the people's lives. They practice the word of God in their religion, in their social life, in their business life, and their political life. And you don't separate the spiritual from the secular. The spiritual life, our life with Christ, I mean, it, it is to go into all areas of our life. And the key to this book is found in Ezra chapter 9 verse 4 and Ezra chapter 10 verse 3 where it says they trembled at the words of the God of Israel. We we have to get back to trembling at the words of God, reverencing the word of God, respecting the word of God. In the book of Ezra there are two main divisions. There's the return of the captives from Babylon led by Zerubbabel in chapters 1 through 6. About 50,000 returned. Then there's the return led by Ezra in chapters 7 through 10, and about 2,000 people followed Ezra. So let's begin now with chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So the subject here in verse 1 is Cyrus's order for restoring the temple. And Ezra puts an emphasis on the word of God, notice in verse 1, right away. Cyrus was one of the most well-informed rulers of the old world. He was a subject of prophecy. He was prophesied about. He was named before he was born. Almost 200 years before he became a king of Persia, he was prophesied about. Isaiah 44, 28 says, When I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will certainly do as I say. He will command, rebuild Israel, and he will say, restore the temple. God's word. The next prophecy, Isaiah 45, one goes on to say, this is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be open, never to shut again. Daniel was a prime minister in Cyrus's court, and it seems that he led him, that Daniel led Cyrus to a knowledge of the true and living God. Cyrus knew what he was doing when he made the announcement that the nation of israel could go back to their land And we're told that god's will was fulfilled in this act This is a prophecy fulfilled It was during Cyrus's reign That daniel gave some of his greatest prophecies including the 70 weeks of daniel a prophecy about israel At least a quarter of the bible when it was first written was prophetic And a large part of it has already been fulfilled. Ezra here, chapter 1, verse 1, is one of those parts of Scripture that has been fulfilled. Over 300 prophecies about the first coming of Christ have been literally fulfilled. For example, the birth of Christ was predicted in the Old Testament. And four things were said in connection with it. First, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Second, that he would be called a Nazarene. Judges chapter 3, verse 5. Third, he was called, to, uh, he was called out of Egypt. Hosea 11, one. And fourth, there would be a weeping in Ramah, a little town near Jerusalem, in Jeremiah 31, 15. Matthew takes all of these prophecies and puts all of these pieces together and he gives us the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2 is all about fulfilled prophecy. Ezra 1.1 here is also fulfilled prophecy. And the 70 years of captivity were over. The order of Cyrus was given and the children of Israel could now go back to their land. But very few went back. But in all of this, what we see is the sovereignty of God. The hand of God in all of this. Today we see good and we see evil. We see acts of kindness, and we see senseless violence. We see wars, we see heartache, we see suffering, and the list goes on. But you see, behind all of these things is the hand of God. God is pulling the strings. God is calling the shots. The glorious sovereignty of God here is what we see. And in it, we see the providence of God, that it controls all things. Verse 1 says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Notice that. The Lord stirred Cyrus up. God has a plan. And by his spirit, God's plan comes to pass. Proverbs 21.1 tells us, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. And when Solomon wrote this, kings had total authority. And they were often considered to be like God's. And this proverb shows us that God and not earthly rulers have ultimate authority over the affairs of the world. Even though they might not realize it, the, most, the, the earth's most powerful kings have always been under God's control. We see that in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 8. Listen to what it says. What sorrow awaits Assyria, the rod of my anger, God says. I use it as a club to express my anger. I'm sending Assyria against a godless nation, against a people with whom I am angry. Assyria will plunder them, trampling them like dirt beneath its feet. But the king of Syria will not understand, notice that he is my tool, my instrument, God says. His mind does not work that way. His plan is simply to destroy, to cut down nation after nation, and he will say, each of my princes will soon be a king. Plans are useless without God's blessing. And we should always seek his blessing for everything that we do, no matter how small or how big. Proverbs 16, 9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Cyrus was the means or the tool, the instrument by which God moved the Persian Empire. Cyrus gave the command, and it was publicly announced. Hebrews chapter one verses one and two says, "God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, notice token, uh, spoke in times past uh, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son." This kind of announcement is for the multitude. Today, God speaks to the multitude through the preaching of his gospel. It was also a written decree. It was a written order. And this was for the judges. And it was also for a reference. The word of the truth of the gospel is also written to establish its assurance. We have a written copy of it. We have documented. We have it documented. Also, what follows here shows how well it was received. Just like the exodus from, uh, uh, from Egypt, it was a, a, a figure of the freedom of the believer in Christ from the bondage of sin, so was the return from the captivity of Babylon. And the providence of God is universal. God moves all throughout the world. God rules the world according to a great plan, to his plan. And we see this in the scripture of prophecy. We see broad plans for the future history of the world all laid out. Listen to Genesis nine twenty five through 27. It says, then he cursed the descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham, a curse on the Canaanites. May they be the lowest of servants to the descendants of Shem and Japheth. Then Noah said, may Shem be blessed by the Lord, my God, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge the territory of Japheth, and may he share the prosperity of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Notice, God is is providential everywhere. All of these verses here show us that, that he was providential everywhere. Consider the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, verse 1 says. And then Jeremiah 25:12 says then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity says the Lord and I will make it a perpetual desolation. The Lord says in Jeremiah 29:10 for thus says the Lord after 70 years are completed at Babylon I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. We see many examples of prophecy fulfilled. Here, for example, the restoration of Judah, we see fulfilled from the captivity of Babylon. The time was in the first year of Cyrus, about 536 BC. Then add the 70 years of Jeremiah's prophecy to this, and we have the year 606 BC. It's the same year that King Nebuchadnezzar carried Jehoiakim and the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon, Second Chronicles 36, 6-7. God's plan includes the way he will accomplish his purposes. God stirs up the spirits of men to study his word. Daniel 9, 2 says, During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, was studying the writings of the prophets. I learned from the word of the Lord, as recorded by Jeremiah the prophet, that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. God also, verse 1 says, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Daniel was stirred up by God to pray. Cyrus was stirred up by God to move. You see, it's God's plan that his people should pray for their blessings. Ezekiel 36, 37 says this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am ready to hear Israel's prayers for these blessings, and I'm ready to grant grant them their requests. You see, God requires that his people should seek him. And they must pray for that. Because by prayer, God is sought after and inquired after. This is how we find God, through prayer. God's promises must be the subject of our prayers. And we saw that in the model prayer last Sunday. Jesus said, pray in this manner. And then he gave us a model prayer. So the lessons that we learn from verse 1 is that there's no such thing as chance, coincidence, or luck. Not in God's kingdom, not as a Christian. Also, afflictions don't just come out of nowhere. Afflictions are not just a bad hand that we've been dealt. It's not just a, 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 a stroke of bad luck or it's just bad timing, whatever we might think of it. Secondly, see God's hands in our deliverances. And then learn that providences, the hand of God, are often punishment. Like here, the 17 years of captivity were punishment... For God's people, because of the 70 Sabbath years of selfishness, that they didn't let the land rest. For every, for every seventh year, the, the people were not to till the land. They weren't to till it. They weren't to plant anything. They weren't to harvest anything. They were to let the land rest, but they didn't. God punished them for that. Their 70 years of captivity, was for every year, they didn't let the land rest. And as a result, the poor also is the result of the privileges of God. They're privileges of God. You can be sure that your sin will find you out. You can't hide your sin from God. I mean, he sees all, he knows all. So how in the world do we think that we're going to hide our sin from God? Verse 2. So at the end of verse 1, it says again that Cyrus uh, made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And he said, verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So Cyrus's decree here is very important. First of all, because he said he'd been given all the kingdoms of the earth that existed during his day. He knew that God had given him his position. Now, how many rulers today know that they are ministers of God whether they believe it or like it or not? That they have been put into office by God whether they know it or not? Our elected officials, whether they like them or not, are the work of God for some, for some great purpose, again, in the kingdom of God. Romans 13 Paul says for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. I think we saw that in the last election. (laughs) Nobody expected Donald Trump to win. It was a shoe in for Hillary. No, it wasn't. God saw something different. Cyrus said that he has commanded me, God commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem. The amazing thing is, is that Cyrus was a Gentile at this time. And apparently Cyrus came to a knowledge of the true living God because of Daniel, through Daniel. And Cyrus now gives the okay for the Jews to go, who had been in Babylonian captivity, to go back to Jerusalem. Cyrus wasn't a Jew, but God worked through him. To get the Jews that had been exiled who were in captivity back to their homeland. And Cyrus gives the order allowing their return. And he gave them protection. He gave them money and the temple articles that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar. So here's the thing. When you face tough situations and you feel surrounded and you feel outnumbered and you feel overpowered or outdone, remember... That God's power is not limited to your measly resources. He is able to use anyone to carry out his plans. Verses 3 through 4. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So God ordered Cyrus to do this, but he didn't order the people to go to Jerusalem. He gave gave the people the okay to go there. Those who didn't choose to go back to Jerusalem were to make an offering of gold and silver and other valuable things that would help those who were going back to carry out the order to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. Now, you know, big projects require teamwork with some people serving on the battle line, on the front lines, and other people giving support to those that are on the front lines. Each role that we have in the kingdom of God is necessary to get the job done. When you're asked to serve, when we're asked, we're to do it faithfully. We're to be a team member. And, no, and it doesn't matter who gets the credit. We need to do whatever needs to be done. Verses 5 through 6. Then the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits, notice God had moved, they arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. There weren't a lot of people who went back to Jerusalem. God moved the hearts of the leaders. He moved some of the family heads. He moved the priests and he moved the Levites. And he gave them a great desire to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But the major changes started inside the people's heart. You see, as God works on our attitudes and our beliefs and our desires, the change begins from within. These interchanges lead to faithful works for the Lord. And after 48 years of captivity, the arrogant Jewish nation was humbled. When the people's attitudes and desires changed, that's when God stopped their punishment. And he gave them another chance to go home and to try again. Paul reminds us in Philippians 2.13, It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, doing God's will starts with your desires. Are you willing to be humble? Are you open to the opportunities God gives you to serve in his kingdom? Are you open to move as he guides and directs you at at his direction? Ask God to give you the desire to follow him more closely. So many Jews chose to go to Jerusalem, but more chose to stay in Babylon rather than go home. You know why? The journey back to Jerusalem was hard. It was dangerous. It was expensive, and it took four months. Travel conditions were poor. Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside lay in ruins. The people who were living in that area, they weren't very friendly. And Persian records show that many Jews in captivity had accumulated a lot of wealth. So for them to pick up and go back to Jerusalem, to go back home, to their homeland, meant they had to give up everything and start over. And a lot of people just couldn't do that. More like they wouldn't do it. They preferred their wealth and their comfort and their security over the sacrifice, which was the cost that God's work would require. It is a sacrifice to serve the Lord. But it's the greatest blessing. The, these peoples, people who wouldn't go back to Jerusalem to help build the temple, rebuild the temple, their priorities were out of whack. Jesus said in Mark 4, 18 and 19, now, excuse me now these are the ones sown among thorns they are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it that is the word becomes unfruitful we can't learn I'm sorry we can't let our prosperity and our comfort and our security stop us from doing what God calls us to do now it's not certain if these people are out of God's will. It's not a sure thing that, that that these people are out of God's will. But later on in the book of Esther, we're sure that for those who stayed in the land and did not go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, it was not a good story for them. And at that time, they were definitely out of the will of God. Those who stayed helped their brethren who went back they gave them the things that they needed to help rebuild the temple now this has an application for all of us not everybody is called to be a missionary or a pastor or whatever else the, the the position might be but just because god didn't call you to that position does not mean you're not to help and support those who did get the call who god did call We should support those who are faithfully serving the Lord on the front lines and back them up and encourage them with our prayers and our finances or whatever they need. In combat, it's estimated that for every soldier fighting on the front lines, there has to be 10 people behind them getting supplies to them. Food, clothing, medical care, ammunition, And you know, it is true in God's army today. Now, in Ezra's day, the people who didn't return, they felt a responsibility to become partners with their brothers who did go back to Jerusalem. So the group that returned were the poorer people. Those who had accumulated a lot of wealth and stuff and didn't want to go back because it was too much of a sacrifice. They stayed behind, but they supported those who went to Jerusalem. When we read in verse 5, it says, The heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. These were humble people. And the psalmist says in, Pro, in Psalm 25, 9, The humble, he guides in justice, and the humble, he teaches his way. The humble are those that, guide, that God guides, and the humble are, are those that God teaches. We have to be teachable and not prideful that we know it all. These are the ones, the one that went back are the ones who understood the times. And so they went back to their land. Verses 7 and 8. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put uh, in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of, of Mithradath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, how, how was it that, that how, did, how did Cyrus get these articles of the house of the Lord back? Because, you see, at the time, they were being used, At Belshazzar's drunken feast, the night that Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. Those those vessels of God, they were being desecrated at this drunken feast. According to Daniel chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, the same night that the city of Babylon was captured, the Persian kings had put away these vessels, and when Cyrus became king, they were there. And God saw to this that he brought them back. Now, these holy vessels, that is holy in the sense that they were made and dedicated specifically for the use of God. They were given to the priests and the Levites who were returning to Jerusalem. And then we're given some details about them. Look at verses 9 through 11 as we close. This is the number of them. 30 gold platters and 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All of the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All of the, all these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. How did Cyrus... Again, get the articles again. God gave them to him. The providence of God. This is what we saw. God saw to it. In verses 9 through 11, every article of gold and silver was a witness to God's protection and God's care. The providence of God. Even though many years had passed, God got these articles back to his people. So in this, we can be, uh, you know, we may be discouraged at times by the things that happen in our life. But you know what? We must never give up our hope in the promises that God has given us. The turning point may be just ahead. And a man wrote this. I can't remember for sure who it was, so I don't want to say it, but I remember the quote. He said, it's always too soon to quit. Always too soon to quit when you're a, when you're a Christian and you, and you belong to the great and mighty God. Always too soon to quit. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. Father, we thank you for your providence, Lord. We thank you for your providential workings in our life, Lord. And Father, may we learn <clears throat> that afflictions in our life, trials in our life, sufferings in our life don't just appear out of nowhere. They don't just drop in on us. Just out of the clear blue sky. Father, we, help us to understand they're a part of a bigger plan that you have for our life, God. Help us not to be discouraged by the mysteries of your will, the mysterious will that you have for our life, God. But to know that you are a great, all-knowing God, almighty God. And you know exactly what we need, when we need, and why we need it, God. Help us to just submit to you, Lord, in all things. To know that you love us too much to do us any harm. And you're too powerful to allow anything or anyone to change your will or your purpose for our life. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But God's word is spoken to you. And you realize you need to know and to trust in someone that is trustworthy. God who never lies, who never goes back on his word, who always keeps his promises to us, has said he will never leave us nor forsake us. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if God has spoken to your heart and you recognize, I need Jesus Christ and I need to humble myself. I need to cast my pride aside and, and recognize that that I can't live this life on my own. I can't guide my own life. And my resources are, are, are futile. They are few They are helpless in the, in the trials of life. As we worship, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisle so as the steps up front and I'll meet you there and when the song's over we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith